Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrewer and I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the recently released Chilcot Report. So the Chilcot Report is the inquiry by the British government into the decision-making around um, the decision to invade uh, Iraq in 2003. It was announced in 2009 and was recently released in July 2016. So Nick, if you can start start us off by giving us an overview of some of the findings of the Chilcot Report, please. Yeah, so uh, you've hinted at how long it took. It was uh, six, seven years, really, before it got published. And there was no set deadline, so it really you know, went on and on. But I think a part of that was the amount of the amount of evidence that was gathered. Um, and so Chilcot looked at all the processes underpinning the decision to go to war. Um, and um, from things like, you know, how the intelligence assessments about WMD emerged, uh, which is something that was covered in the Butler Review slightly before uh, the Chilcot report, but also uh, other stuff, not just looking at the intelligence analysis, but looking at what the, how, the, how the government decision processes were working. And the, there's quite a clear picture that emerges um, of it being basically a, a mess that, uh, you know, the, the decision to invade sort of happened. It sort of washed over people and gradually gradually became the thing we were going to do without anyone really explicitly sitting down and saying, well, hang on a minute, should we, should we do this? Is it a good idea? What might happen? What are our plans if things start to go wrong? And, and that's where um, Chilcott is most critical. He's saying that there really wasn't... So he said... Um, uh, he, he made statements like... Um, the uh, the importance of collective ministerial discussion encourages frank and informed debate and challenge. Uh, you know, you need to assess risks, weigh options, and set an achievable and realistic strategy. And um, and he sort of said none of that was really done. Uh, and he said the the lesson really is that all all aspects of any intervention need to be calculated, debated, and challenged with the utmost rigor. Now, as I, I was actually having to be in government, I was working in government, I was in the Ministry of Defence, not, not, I have to say, part of any of the planning um, uh, around, uh, around the Iraq war, but, uh, but I was there and, and you know, and I've been, I've been a civil servant for nearly 15 years. And um, that is pretty accurate. I mean, I mean, these things, it is quite hard to pinpoint, okay, this is the person that made a decision. And here is the evidence on which their decision rests. Here are the values that they uh, are trying to achieve. Here are the outcomes they want. And now, you know, here's here's why we believe this particular course of action will achieve those outcomes optimally. A decision theorist's approach to how decisions ought to be done would seek to find that somewhere. Yeah. That is not how it works. And and uh, I mean, I think in the case of the invasion of Iraq, you know, it's debatable whether doing that would have made any difference. Um, but in general, um, you know, government decision making it does not look very much like what you would hope an idealized decision process would look. And Chilcott very much picked up on that. Okay, really good summary. Um, I've already got some questions I want to ask, but. Peter, at this stage, anything you want to say? I think it's 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 a uh, example of something you often see with organisational decision making. If you consider the organisation as a an entity, like a, a being a, a conscious being that's making decisions to to fulfil certain outcomes, often decisions <clears throat> can't be pinpointed to a particular person making a decision, but they are sort of 
an aggregation of lots and lots of little decisions made by hundreds of people across the organization. So down to the level of, oh, should I include this particular point in my brief? Mm. Should I uh, go collect a bit more data about this thing? Decisions, really low level decisions like that have a big outcome later on when it's all this information is aggregated and presented to people who who nominally have the responsibility for deciding whether or not to invade uh, uh, these sort of the, the, it, it, things are clouded things are missed opportunities are lost mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's an it's, it's interesting dimension to collective decision making okay so I mean you've kind of preempted the the question that I wanted to ask but you're, you're kind of getting there um, which is is this business on as as usual um and or was there anything particular in this in this set of circumstances that that was that was unusual i guess in this less than optimal um process of decision making or was this just like any other war that goes wrong um any any yeah uh, well let's let's just clarify goes wrong because uh you know the it certainly achieved its uh military objectives um, in military terms, the Iraq War was a raging success. It, of course, it's the it's what happened afterwards that it all went wrong. It's the, mm. the political side um, where you know that they and there really wasn't. I mean, there were no um, you know plans really. It was it was kind of made up. Uh, I think people were just hugely optimistic about how stable Iraq would be, um, and and then you know our policy about what to do to stabilize things when they started going wrong was very much made up on the fly. Mm. And I can I do you know how, I was slightly party to some of the uh, discussions about post-war economic planning um and you know sort of down to things like well which money are they going to use uh are they going to use the old saddam um dinars or do we want to get rid of those and replace them with uh you know the the another currency called the swiss dinar or you know are we going to just have dollars and um you know there there were discussions but no real conclusions and in the end you know it things just happened people brought dollars in and and you know the, that that was that was how the decision was made it wasn't there wasn't a sort of weighing up of of uh, costs and benefits really um so um okay yeah. so it was as you say so okay not necessarily a case of it going wrong as i said i mean bits went right bits went wrong okay yeah so so, the, so the, to my question of of you know was this business as normal yeah yeah i mean actually in this well i don't i think yes i mean you you, see you could say that we were just that what happened in iraq was unlucky now obviously it's very easy with hindsight to say um you know kind of clearly we were clearly unprepared and we should have foreseen um some of that chaos and and it 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 was you know some of the um uh, released papers the joint intelligence committee papers uh point to you know all of these tensions and things that saddam uh kept to lid on uh being things that we should worry about um so so you know it might just i think i think it's probably fair to say that this wasn't spectacularly different from from how most uh, decisions are made um but when it comes to these big military decisions mm. there's there's uh, for some reason a much lower standard of evidence um applied generally in government if you look at the decision to uh, you know for hs2 mm. so high speed the high speed rail line there is a massive economic assessments there's tons of data gathered um you know there's still debates about whether or not it's correct um that you, you know it's years of work go into planning these things and, to, and making these cost benefit uh, yeah. assessments when it comes to going to war typically it's all quite spur of the moment well why is that do you think I, I that's a very good question and i i i think 
my, if I could hypothesize, if I could, if I could justify that, it would be based on the fact that actually when it comes to going to war, it's very, very hard to forecast anything. And if you think about things like how hard it is to forecast the US election, now we, we think the US election is going to be fairly important. I mean, it's going to be quite a different world if Trump gets in than if Clinton gets in. Yeah. That's peacetime America with tons of data, right? And we still don't know. We still can't really be that sure what's going to happen. When you're talking about the aftermath of uh, when you invade a country that uncertainty is just you know becomes becomes um uh, you know you've got to manage it in a different way and and i think you know most most of the time we don't really know what's going to happen and, and making it up as you go along which is a classic sort of british approach often does work yeah. um in, well, in situations where there's very high uncertainty but isn't it also that it's if it's a decision to go if it's something like war um it's just a potentially more emotional um, looser kind of situation where uh, politicians rather than um, uh, a bureaucratic uh, infrastructure come to the fore more they've got they've got a greater role to play uh, do you I mean do you, don't you think that's what it could be so something like um, HS2 is of course it's it, I mean the, the decisions that are made are, are, are at a political level but it's it's a it's a different prospect. It's a different kind of project than going to war, and so I'm not explaining myself very clearly. No, but, but do I you don't think I'm. Do you, am yeah, I, you will maybe. I mean, the thing is that obviously people actually, I would guess, right? My guess is maybe a bit cynical, but I think people are probably more emotionally attached to the outcomes of HS2 if they've got a train line that's going to go through their back garden um, than anyone was about Iraq. I no, mean, but I, the, I think no, but the the people making the decisions can be more emotional i don't necessarily mean the people affected by it. i mean the people making i think decisions i think maybe i think maybe you're right i think emotion does come a big part of it but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't form a utilitarian argument with emotional and humanitarian objectives if you could if you can evidence that by going to iraq we will um save lots of iraqi lives we'll save lots of european lives because it won't there won't be an opportunity for uh we'll stabilize it and there won't be opportunity for terrorism etc etc then you can form a utilitarian argument but with objectives that are less monetary or, le or less economic so i don't think that's uh, and, and decision making government is all is sort of has to be but it has to be utilitarian because it's all about trying to um, get the most out of the taxpayers' pound to deliver the most possible benefit. Okay. Yeah, sorry, good good decision making doesn't mean ignoring values. I mean, it, you no, know, okay, it look, if you're a medieval, if you're a medieval, you know, king, um, and your aim is to expand your empire, yeah. you can do that in a way that is good decision making or bad decision making. Good decision making is merely about how you go about achieving your objectives. It's not telling you what those objectives should be. Okay, but look, now I'm sort of talking about it in a different way. Okay, so let's say that, um, you know, I want to go on to other stuff with this, but let's say that if you can apportion a percentage, a weighting to um, the power that certain individuals or institutions have within certain decision making processes, right? I think that something like, I think foreign, foreign, policy, foreign policy, but actually more usually, sorry, not foreign policy, but um, the decision to go to war, okay, military action is often historically um, more centred on decisions by smaller and smaller groups of people, okay, and smaller groups and, and the leadership. So, for example, the, the decision to go to, to, to war in Iraq 
if you could put a, a percentage on the weight of George Bush's um, power or what's the word, his will to go you're, to war. You're right, yeah, but you're or, already, you're, you're abstracting. When you say George Bush, yeah. it's, it's implausible to me that George Bush uh, really, really kind of wanted the war in Iraq and pushed for it to the to the degree that that sort of simplistic understanding of how government works would suggest. I mean, it's going to be the case that people in the US administration... Um, you know, felt that this was a good opportunity to do something, that there was sort of more of a mandate in a way, you know, post 911. Now, the connection between that and Iraq is tenuous uh, at best. And but, you know, they might have felt, well, here's an opportunity to get rid of someone who's been a thorn in our side for quite a while. Okay. Um, you know, I might have side benefits, might be might help stabilize the Middle East. You know, but there's all sorts of things that would have would have come together it would have coalesced into a, a sort of actually this looks like it might it might actually be doable is it a good idea um it was not going to be george bush sitting waking up one morning and saying you know what i'd really like to invade iraq and so but, you know no, but he, ultimately he's the person who decides at the end of the day and i appreciate he's got all these sort of uh uh, institutions and processes at his hand to to help him with that decision but ultimately if he didn't want to do it um it it it, it probably wouldn't have happened yeah well yes if he was ideologically opposed to it then then that is uh plausible okay. but, I, but that, that's very un a very unusual situation I, i'll tell you just one anecdote from when i was in um mod we were, we were i was taking part in a thing called the the evidence-based decision making initiative and as, as part of that they tried to analyze uh, what kinds of things were sent up to the uh, defense council yeah. which is the sort of senior decision making body in in defense and when they looked at something you know there was 30 or 40 um papers that asked for a decision they were all they were all to approve something mm. so it was like here's an argument why we should do this can yeah. you just tick tick that please uh, i think with perhaps one or two exceptions where they were actually asked to make a decision Okay, so I take your point because I think the point I was trying to make is the, and this is where I want to move it forward, which is okay. This is what went wrong, and it was suboptimal, and but looking ahead, you know, this is how, how could it be different, right? And I guess one of the things I'm trying to say is the human factor. I I think um, that's what I'm trying to put forward. But one of the things you're saying there is okay, it might be a human factor, but actually you can analyze and and how how information was presented to decision makers and and so actually it is still the the institution or the infrastructure where it, which is suboptimal okay so um so my question is this how do you stop this happening happening again i think there were there was lots of good analysis that went on uh and i think uh, um uh, not not uh, least uh not not least dr david kelly was a big uh was a big campaigner against um, to the point where he sort of actually talked to the press and talked about his misgivings um, and uh, so there was lots of there was lots of dissent there was lots of people saying well actually this doesn't add up this we, we, uh, some of these people had lots of oversight of over lots of different broad sources and say well this this web WMD thing doesn't add up um, and it, this was a sort of big bone of contention when Nick and I were both in government that it was it was it was the defense side of things which was sort of arguing against it saying well actually if you consider more things all at once it doesn't seem to make sense but it was the other agencies who are really pushing um the the but the it's the way that this evidence was reported um to decision makers to the to tony blair um and the the the, the 
the way the bits were cherry picked in order to add emphasis to mm-hmm. the, the argument that's probably the most dangerous thing and that's one of the findings of the report uh, an example is where uh, uh, sir david dear dear love presented particular reports that came from a, a single source about the iraqi capacity for uh, launched WMD, uh, which later turned out to be uh, an unreliable source. Okay, so again, it's fine. So how do you stop that happening? Well, I think that, that we, we, Nick and I talk, have talked at length about, about system, sy- systemic um, mechanisms that can be put in place for laying bare all evidence that supports or undermines hypotheses, um, and, and, and relying on relying on the computers to do much of the aggregation for you to pr- pr- present you with a much more holistic view mm. of all the data that you've got uh, and if, it, if it's done if it's done um, autom- it, it done semi-automatically like that it allows you then to do things which you can't currently do uh, which, which such as sensitivity analysis so if you you took that one that one report from this dodgy source, and you, you can ask the system how sensitive is it to this, the, sense, the, the, the argument to go to war, how sensitive is it to this report. So if you assume that that report's no good, then you, you see that your uh, argument to go sort of starts to fall apart. So that, that, that prompts you to go and either collect more data on that or look for other means of supporting the argument. That's there's, that's a <clears throat> I think that well I obviously agree with uh, this the vision but even in the short term absent any system like that there are lots of quick fixes that we can put into place and which I've seen actually work I mean I've I've seen um, you know when I was in MOD uh, I I was involved in projects which um, did change the prevailing opinion um, so there were which I I was, can't really mention but. But they, they, you know, there were there were was certain views about, for example, what would happen in Syria, that when they're explicitly subject to um, to attempting to widen the range of potential scenarios that we were planning on, when we were trying to consider a wide range of potential outcomes and potential hypotheses, that when people were were sort of made to sit down and and think of options that they hadn't perhaps thought of, thought about, you know, make sure that they're not just fighting the, the last war. Um, Actually, the picture did change. You know, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't always a kind of. There wasn't always a, a no, moment of real revelation. Circumstances, real life intelligence assessments, okay. um, where you know the the by sitting down and explicitly laying bare what evidence we had and why we believed the things we believed, um, you 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 can circumvent a lot of the cognitive biases. So so you know groupthink and uh, confirmation bias and so on, which which um, are inevitable whenever you have a bunch of humans looking at something together. Um, that's a very quick fix. You know, it's just a matter of saying, look, what, what is what are the arguments for and against here? How much do we believe them? Um, you know, how how important are they to the argument? That, that is not. You don't need a high tech solution. You can do that with pen and paper. Um, and it, you know, it, it stops it being your view against my view, and it starts being a discussion about what the evidence suggests. There's no reason you can't do that with a decision to go to war. There's no reason at all. It's not like somehow that's that's suddenly the principles of good decision making go out of the window. Mm-hmm. Now there's going to be a lot more uncertainty, but that's fine. You can factor that in, okay. and you can factor that into the kinds of decisions you make. So, um, you, you know, you might if if there's a, if you're very the more certain you are about the outcomes, the more you can specialize and optimize your approach so if you're going on holiday to the sahara 
and you know you, you could be 99.9% sure that it isn't going to rain, you can just choose not to take your umbrella. But if you're going somewhere where there's more uncertainty about the weather, you're going to want to ha- pack a wider range of tools. And and it's no different, you know, if you've got a high, if you have a high uncertainty about something like, like what's going to happen to post-invasion Iraq, um, you need a wider range of um, political tools at your disposal. And I think, you know, Chilcott's fairly clear that they didn't have that, or at least, you know, they had to kind of start scrabbling around for them when things started not going according to how people wanted them to okay great uh, i want to wrap up there is there any sort of in, anything you want to finally say in one sort of sentence at all peter just to draw the parallel again between organizations and individuals or or, uh, or specific example specific people the uh the the, the planning bias the 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 optimism about what would happen post Iraq is very similar to the planning bias that individuals or, or teams suffer from, uh, and I, I think that much of the problems to do with the way that intelligence was reported to up the chain and it seemed to strengthen arguments rather than counter them um, is is a form of com- uh, of uh, confirmation bias, but at an organisational level rather than an individual level. Okay, good. Yep. Okay, Nick, one final thing. Yeah, just to say that you know. Uh, I suppose not. Not really to contradict, because it, it, Chilcott looked not didn't look at outcomes. He looked at processes. You know, actually, it's not. It's not. Well, things went wrong. Therefore, it was a bad decision. Sure. Things going wrong doesn't mean you made a bad decision. Yeah. Uh, it might, as you said, mean that you were unlucky. Um, and if you look at if you look back at the conflicts that the UK has been involved with since the Second World War, uh, I count thirty two of which, um, according to Wikipedia, at least nineteen have been victories. Now some of those are questionable because they're military victories, like Iraq, Afghanistan, and mm. Libya, uh, but not necessarily uh, you know political or strategic victories. Um, but you know what that means is we roughly we've got a we've got a hit rate of about fifty percent. You know fifty percent of uh, the conflicts we um, get involved with end you know like sierra leone or the falklands they 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 end uh in a in a sort of you know with us meeting our military objectives i you know what's there's a debate about what the right what that figure ought to be you'd like it to be 100 percent, but actually only getting involved with a, a military intervention when you're 100 percent sure of vict- sure of victory may very well not be uh the 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 optimal uh, uh, figure, figure there. It could, could, you could well, you know, it could just be that then you'd be ultra conservative, mm. um, and you you wouldn't be taking gambles that actually were optimal. There'd be an opportunity loss. Um, okay, good. All right, thanks, guys. Um, well, look, what I take from this is, um, according to what you're saying, on about three hundred or so days of the year, I should take my umbrella out with me if I live in England, um, and be prepared. Right, I think. That's 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 the nugget that I I think I get from this. So um, it probably depends on how much you care about getting wet. I mean, I don't mind getting a little bit soggy, so I never carry an umbrella. I can, I actually have a I've got a waterproof coat, so I can't stand umbrellas. I can't stand other people's umbrellas. People are very thoughtless when it comes to umbrellas, uh, and most people are shorter than me, so that's really annoying. Um, but also, they're just a you know you lose a hand. Uh, effectively, you have got an umbrella, and I uh, I you know I raincoats fantastic. They wear them. And, you know, the water can't even get in sideways like it can with an umbrella. Well, It just seems like it strictly dominates having an umbrella. And sure. I don't know why people have umbrellas when they could have waterproofs. But, I mean, so to summarise what Peter's saying, it's got to be clear in your objectives, really what you want, yeah? Um, if you don't mind getting soggy, that's okay. But 
I would take issue with what you're saying because one of the problems with raincoats, unless you have a huge like one of those bizarre Australian sort of a flashes coat, yeah, with people wear those silly hats on and stuff. I mean, you're going to get wet legs. That's my problem. Well, you're going to get wet legs with an umbrella. No, not if it's big enough. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, no, but I think I think the the key there is really is uh, you know make sure you've considered all the options. <clears throat> you know exactly. You take you say well look uh, here's my raincoat. It's a bit lighter. It's easier to wear. I get a spare hand, but possibly wet legs. And then you compare those. You know with how much you care about those outcomes. Yeah, it's true actually because actually I've got a series of uh, quite disposable small umbrellas, and what I don't like about them is actually if I'm honest, my legs do get wet because the surface area is not quite big enough. But I've decided to keep going with that because I don't have a great big long umbrella that I can't fold down because it just gets in the way of things. So there you go. I'm already sort of doing really, I'm using Aleph Insights um, techniques and analysis already, right? Good. So that's good. good. Um, okay, I'll send you, you the invoice later. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Nick Hare and Peter Coghill of Aleph Insights. Thank you for joining us on the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. Until next time. Thank you. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.